Monica Bielaskita is part of a new wave of thinkers who are redefining the practice of thinking about the future. As she puts it, mainstream futurist thinkers tend to extrapolate from the prevailing status quo and propose singular, predetermined future scenarios. With the Protopia framework, Monica and others see a vast scope of alternative futures which we can choose to bring about through imagination and innovation. Spending time with Monica was fascinating, and we hope to have her return to pick up the conversation in the coming season. Hello, hello, and welcome to The Evolving Leader. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, John? I am feeling very excited. I am desperate to talk to our guest. I had a chat with her a few weeks ago and it was uh, the time ran away and uh, unfortunately we don't have the same amount of time today but it's going to be a great show so I'm feeling great. How are you feeling? I'm feeling similar. I'm I'm really grateful to be in this present moment with you today uh, where we will spend a great deal of our time talking about the future because today we are joined by Monica Bielskite. Monica is a futurist and founder of Protopia Futures, a collaborative research and creative platform which challenges dystopian and utopian binary stereotypes and seeks to offer more hopeful visions of the future. Folks, you're definitely going to want to lean in to this conversation we're about to have with Monica because pr- from everything I've read and watched uh, that she's done, there is a depth of richness that demands our engagement. Uh, to draw you in a little bit about where we're going today, Monica believes that technological innovation without humanitarian evolution always leads to dystopian futures. Uh, We'll be jumping off this premise for our time with her today. So Monica, we are delighted that you are here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to share this virtual uh, space with y'all and of course uh, with the audience. Monica, welcome to The Evolving Leader. We met a few years ago where we were both keynote speakers, and I was really intrigued by your approach, which is very different to many of the people and organizations I've come to work in the area that you're in, although I think you work in a kind of kind of rarefied environment. But before we get into that, can we talk a little bit about your life? Um, because it really forms the basis of your worldview and thinking. Um, starting, I guess, with the fact that you were born at a very significant moment and location and time. Yeah. Um, wow. I had I had quite a bit of a, a <laughs> adventurous life, um, for better or worse. Um, I was born um, in a country that doesn't exist anymore, uh, which is Soviet Union. Um, then became Lithuania, and uh, I really came of age um, at that moment of the collapse of the physical wall. You know, the mm-hmm. the, the Iron Curtain. Um, as well as the opening up of the digital world. Um, So a lot of the things that people in the so-called Western world uh, take for granted, um, such as liberty of movement, um, such as, you know, uh, just kind of um, talking how social media had made things worse. uh, I I have a bit of a different perception because... um, to be able to see, you know, a, a truly oppressive authoritarian regime actually collapse under its own weight makes you think that nothing is ever inevitable and nothing is ever impossible. Um, and I think the different paths um, that some of the former Soviet Union countries have gone and the paths that, um, let's say, 
Belarusia, um, Russia, and Ukraine have gone and the reality they're dealing with today also makes me think that we cannot take anything ever for granted. As well as, um, you know, Putin's uh, very open stance about the fact that he considers that the collapse of the Soviet Union and the liberation of, of the so-called uh, Soviet republics was the greatest mistake and that he ideally would like, <laughs> would like us all to return to the motherland. Um, makes you think that, well, you never know, you know, when place that I'm here right now could become the next Crimea. Um, so the notion of sort of never taking uh, the liberty of movement for granted uh, is something very, very important in my life and which led me uh, to travel the world and, and, and really <laughs> leave my house and, and go to all kinds of places way beyond just sort of, you know, again, global north type of uh, tourist destinations, um, you know, 90, almost 100 countries right now and, and counting um, because I never know when I would not be able to do that ever again um, because that was my family's history, right? And then another thing uh, to, to be really part of those um, first non-exclusive Western university-based sort of digital networks as the only access um, to be able to relate uh, to people that would feel like community, right? Because in a small town where I was from, um, you know, with identity that I have, somebody of mixed uh, background, um, somebody that is queer, um, I felt incredibly isolated. Um, as well as, you know, not having access to literature that I was interested in or um, just sort of anything, right? Like to feel like that's the only way to connect with reality that I was dreaming about, right? So from a very early age, I started dreaming different worlds and I started trying to connect with different worlds. So as much as I'm incredibly critical of technology and of digital networks and of Western culture, um, at the same time, I have quite a bit of a different perspective than some of the people that labeled themselves as progressive within the Western world. Right. Uh, coming from sort of th this history of, of multiple genocides as well, um, you really see world events uh, with a bit more acute kind of a perspective. And something was going on when you were a baby as well, which we should mention. Yeah, um, well, I'm... <laughs> I don't speak often about that, but I'm, I'm also a Chernobyl baby. Um, so my um, my mother was pregnant with me and they were just next to the plant when the whole thing exploded and they were not informed about it. Um, so the fact that I'm here today is 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 um, is, is already a huge victory uh, for, for, for myself uh, to, to be able to live uh, in, you know, even if I've dealt with different health issues throughout my life uh, to know that it was very unsure <laughs> that I would be able to make it into this world. Um, and also, uh, you know, um, actually the, the, the TV series Chernobyl was directed by, uh, by a friend of mine, uh, Johan Rank, uh, who did a really quite a good job. It was actually filmed here in Lithuania, uh, where, I'm current, where I'm currently. Um, I haven't lived here for, for uh, more than half of my life. Uh, as soon as I could leave, I left, but I, I keep coming back every summertime. For, for a little moment. Um, 
And uh, I think he did quite an accurate depiction, you know, how the government corruption throws people under the bus and how uh, we live through lasting consequences and in, in, in the granularity of the effect on people's lives. Though still, there's a lot of other stuff we could speak about that. And I think uh, uh, Svetlana Alexievich's book, Chernobyl Prayer, uh, could really give your audience incredible insights into uh, you know, the realities um, of back then, but continuing into the present day. Um, so I think, you know, a, a lot of these kind of things, you know, we talk about genocides, when we talk about disasters, when you talk about um, things such as, um, you know, being queer or having mental health issues, potentially sentencing you to death under a totalitarian regime. Uh, you know, that's not an abstract notion. That's not a sci-fi novel. That is something that I understand in a very visceral manner. And obviously, a lot of my futures uh, research, I filter through that lens. And that's why also maybe I'm drawn much more um, to spend time and to collaborate uh, with people from across the global South. Um, you know, in the last few years, I've been mostly spending my time in South Africa, um, as well as other different parts of the African continent. Um, but um, there, there are some really, really interesting parallels uh, between uh South Africa and, and what it's living through even today and kind of a bit of where I'm coming from. Obviously, apartheid was absolutely racialized regime, right? It, it was, and, and I think it's a perfect illustration of a utopia for one, I mean, utopia, utopia, what was labeled as utopia for one tiny group of population and dystopia for everybody one shade darker than white. Right. But um, the collapse of the apartheid regime in 94 and obviously the collapse of Soviet Union 89 to 91 puts us in a quite a similar timeline. So it, there's a lot of really interesting mutual conversations with my peers there. Right. Of, of what does it mean to be born before that event? What does it mean to be born after? What does it mean to be born on that cusp and how your life is actually defined by a lot of these things? So how, you know, sometimes in the Western world, people think that, well, you know, age is just a number um, and maybe certain generations get defined by, well, technologies or something like that they've grown up with. But I think in many other parts of the world, generations are also defined by the political strife that they lived or haven't lived through and hence have certain difficulties to fully relate with. Right. And I think uh, these these are the things that don't get often discussed in in, in futures and foresight uh, context, which I think is is really a shame. Hmm. Monica, thank you for sharing a bit about your background. I, I, I really appreciate um, your transparency. And we could spend an entire show, I think, uh, kind of just in any one segment of your of your experience. Um but I want to turn to to one one of your works in particular, where you cite that mainstream futurist thinking tends to extrapolate from the status quo and then propose a singular predetermined future vision, and that the problem with a lot of such foresight is that it is bound by the constraints and suppositions of our dominant perceptions of reality. In other words, we build a future vision bound by our existing values, norms, and worldview. And then this leads to a crisis of imagination. Um, so can you lead us 
through this problem and into a deeper and better understanding of futurist thinking? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I, I want to speak a little bit about who, who wrote it because it wasn't just me. So um, it's it's from uh, Protopia Futures Design Framework, which was initiated by me and and edited by me and, and huge chunks were written by me, yes. Um, but it was really co-written with a phenomenal group of over 30 people that are cited at the end of the document. And, and the chunk of that specific quote was actually by my, uh, you know, family, friend, peer, collaborator, Rada Mystery, who's another brilliant uh, futures foresight practitioner currently at Autodesk, and she looks more into architectural futures, um, right? So I think um, that's, that's a huge thing as well. For me, um, anything that I'm doing, um, it's not so much about my original ideas. Like, <laughs> I don't claim to be the person that has this original vision of the future because I think, well, then I might as well be a science fiction author, hmm. right? As, as a foresight practitioner and, and a futurist, you know, my understanding of the future is really about that knowledge collected uh, from being on the ground, from exchanging with people that are certainly more brilliant than me in, in many different areas. Um, and it's also about building a community of peers with whom we continuously exchange ideas and we keep contributing to each other's work, which, you know, somebody like Rada, we've been doing that for quite a few years. Um, so um, I definitely invite everybody to check out Protopia Futures Design Framework. Um, and I think um, bottom line is that a lot of conversations today about the future focus on technology, right? But it's not technology. It's not some kind of inevitable direction of scientific research that is defining the world that we're going to live in. It is really our culture as human beings. And we've never been rational and we've never taken a path that is somehow the straightest. <laughs> and as much as, you know, it's interesting actually to, to look back into the history of futurism as a word. That's why I always, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a, I'm always at odds with both the industry and even with the framing, right? Because word futurism comes from, um, Futurismo, which is Italian uh, arts movement, deeply entangled with Italian fascism. Mm -hmm. And from the original Futurist Manifesto, there's literally a quote um, that speaks about the Danube River and how these futurists were disgusted about it being, you know, windy and, and, and circly and about its... Um, muddy waters and exact quote fecund with fish so anything that was in any way considered you know associated i guess with 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 uh with women especially <laughs> and obviously with with queerness disability etc was something to be exterminated hmm. right so so there's also very deep strand within utopianism as well as with futurism um of eugenics right who do we have to eliminate to reach that future that we want to imagine, right? So I, I referred to, to apartheid in South Africa, but, you know, even if we look at Nazi Germany, 
like Nazi Germany, they had this whole idea about the Umwelt and 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 sort of the the Lebensraum for the for the Germans, um, and quite a strong environmental vision, but that required exterminating everybody that didn't fit into this idea. And I think a lot of that actually persists in contemporary futurism. Mm-hmm. There's a deep disregard of anything that is inconvenient to a particular vision that we're trying to promote, right? So um, I think now it's become a bit harder with everything that's happened over the pandemic to say that, well, actually exponential technology is going to solve all the problems. AI is this magic pill. You just swallow it and it's a panacea and we will understand everything that has gone wrong. Um, you know, <laughs> and so when people promote this sort of exponential technology that is going to, you know, again, uh, resolve everything, they conveniently forget to speak about the exponential extinction of language and species facilitated by that. And then when that gets pointed out, then we say, well, we just add more technology. So we're going <laughs> to solve the problem created by that thing with more of that thing, rather than actually look at the roots of a lot of these issues and examine, well, maybe the foundations are actually profoundly broken. And generally why these foundations are broken is because they've been designed Generally, they've been designed by a tiny, tiny group of hyper-privileged people within any chosen society. And then they were built by everybody else, by the extracted, you know, oftentimes very much slave labor, right? And so that's at the root. And how do you build, <laughs> how do you build a functional society? How do you build a functional city upon a foundation, you know, whose, uh, whose structures and whose designs you don't want to examine, right? So, I mean, I think a lot about that in my work. Um, and, and, you know, and what I'm very, very passionate about is futures literacy, And how do you teach futures literacy is not just teaching about speculative things that might happen. You actually need to teach people about the history of where these things come from. So when we are watching this extraordinary uh, disinformation pandemic accompanying the COVID pandemic, you know, people are really surprised, but it shouldn't be really surprising. I mean, most of the general population doesn't know much about the history of medicine, doesn't know anything about the history of vaccines and and, and the history of the pandemics and different diseases. And even, you know, I mean, it seems that in some of the countries, even within biology classes, you know, people still didn't figure out what virus is about if they think that 5G can create a virus. Right. So certain fundamental knowledge is lacking, certain fundamental knowledge is lacking about media literacy, about the history of the Internet, about, you know, having at least a basic scope of how certain technologies function and where do they come from and how they can be abused, et cetera, et cetera. And so when, again, you have such a broken foundation, how do you how do you build anything healthy upon it? And unless we actually resolve these, we start figuring out what is the map of our ignorance and how do we tackle it, it's going to be hard to just move forward.
So beyond the literacy piece when it comes to the pandemic, um, I want to pull out something that you've been speaking about, which is the that you know people are dismissive um, or even will destroy the thing that runs contrary to the narrative that they hold about the ideal that they want. In my supposition, I see some of that even going on in the pandemic, right? The idea that, you know, I refuse to accept the the scientific recommendations or whether it's mask wearing or something else. Um, in your view, I, I see that as potentially, but this is just my supposition. I see that as possibly linked to what you're talking about. This, this notion that I have this idea about what way I want the world to look and what I want to believe about it. This pandemic is inconvenient, inconveniencing that idea. And so I'm going to play by a different set of rules. Do you see that at all? Has that been your experience of, of kind of some of the pandemic response? 100%. Um, and I think it's very, very uh, multi-layered. Um, I think the reason why, um, I mean, the reasons for why this virus happened and, and how this pandemic got kicked off are very complex. And we could speak about that, right? Because people are like, oh, it's just one, you know, people always want to find some kind of one magical reason, which certainly mm -hmm. does not implicate them, right? So it's like, you know, something from the lab or something from whatever other, you know, magical explanations that are, that are removed from reality. Um, but more than anything, why this has become a global pandemic, especially uh, in the rich countries, um, is really ableism. And I think we're really not reckoning with that as a society. So I think we're really bad with all of the isms. Um, and I want to I want to sort of. Um, pull back to kind of what's happening right now with uh, the whole critical race theory debate. I mean, it ultimately started with Nicole Hannah-Jones's Project 6019 of New York Times that re-examined why U.S. is the way it is. Like, what, what, what is at the roots of the extreme capitalist United States of America? What is at the roots of guns ownership? What is at the root of people not having universal um, health care, whereas all of the other so-called rich countries do have that? And it looked back that, well, the root of that is in the slavery. Right. And it was really an extraordinary project that I recommend for everybody to, 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 to read through. Um, and I think it's being made into a book. Um, but once <laughs> once it was considered to be taught in schools, there was this mass hysteria from a lot of the people in the older generation, less so actually among the young people, but more the old, the parent generation. Mm -hmm to push back against that. And I think what it ultimately has, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to weave a lot of threads and I hope y'all following me. <laughs> Completely. And I think what it relates to is really that it's very hard for people, especially in positions of power, to imagine a future within which they are obsolete. Right. And it can be very powerful people as politicians, as really wealthy people, but it can also be parents. Right. Because you always you always have a certain amount of power and privilege upon somebody else. Right. Wherever you situate, even when you think that you don't have power, you still or you don't have privilege, you still might have it upon a certain other group 
you know, at the very least towards your, your children or, or somebody like that, right? And I think there's the fear that if, <laughs> if these children will get taught the actual history of the United States of America, which is less about American dream, but really about this reality that was built upon the genocide and slavery um, that benefited only some and has been dystopia for many for a long time, then the children will start questioning, right? The reality that they live in, the behavior of their parents, the things that they were taught and indoctrinated into. Right. Because I think that's another huge thing that we have to remember to also not be born into bigotry is a privilege in itself. Right. So a lot of us are born into a conditioning towards any kind of isms, be it homophobia, um, xenophobia, racism, misogyny, et cetera, et cetera, ableism, so on and so forth. Right. And it takes an actual effort to kind of unpack that. And things such as teaching the actually sort of non-whitewash history of the United States of America, you know, would actually challenge these very parents. So now they're trying to forbid that because of the kind of stuff that it would result in. So, I mean, I think we sort of are starting to reckon a little bit, definitely not enough, with racism, with xenophobia, with homophobia and things like that. However, what I've observed when it comes to ableism throughout this pandemic, you know, even coming from people who, again, would think of themselves as very progressive, very liberal, et cetera, et cetera, on so many other issues, shouldn't have shocked me, but it still did. Hmm. And especially did because of very close people in my community, in my chosen family that have lived with disability with their entire lives, or who have found recently um, themselves being disabled by an illness or something like that. And also because throughout my life, I've experienced vulnerability because of certain health conditions as well. And the kind of gaslighting that happened, I think is really rooted to that, is rooted in how our society doesn't want to deal with aging, with mortality, with death, but also how we've projected this idea, again, specifically in, in the Western world, in the rich countries. And, you know, what also, to kind of backtrack a little bit, what, what does rich countries mean? You know, rich countries are actually not just rich naturally by themselves. These are former colonial powers. And what are the poor countries? Well, these are formerly colonized countries from whom the wealth was extracted. Right. So that, that's important to understand because it influences mm-hmm. all of the dynamics, including the currently happening vaccine apartheid. Um, but I personally think that ableism is really at the root of all of that. And the only way to really understand how this pandemic has been really affecting people. And if we would have heeded those voices from the very beginning, were the voices of disabled activists and disabled researchers. Because they were saying that from the very beginning, they were ringing those alarm bells from the first cases that started unfolding. And how society has decided that, well, you know, the only ones who die are those with pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the really, the really, really um, bizarre irony within all of that, how that's the ism that we reckon with the least 
especially when it's compounded intersectionally with other isms, right? So the, real, the lived reality is much worse for somebody who's Black, Indigenous, person of color and disabled, or queer and disabled person, right? Or, or poor and disabled person. Um, but um, <laughs> compared with all the other isms, right? Well, when you're a light-skinned person, you'll say, well, I'm, I'm going to always stay light-skinned, right? So if I defend that privilege, is the privilege that I have for life, right? If you're a man and you have this delusional idea that patriarchy somehow actually helps you, which it doesn't, it harms you as well because it doesn't allow you to fully be yourself. You have to play up to a certain fictional role of manhood. Um, but let's say you have this idea that patriarchy will support you and you think that you will always remain a cis man you kind of defend that fort because it's your fort. But when it comes to disability, we can become disabled at any given moment in time. Any of us. Nobody has some kind of magic, magic potion that would protect us from that unless we experience a really sudden death, like a fatal car crash, right? So sooner or later, we will experience disability. Sooner or later, our loved ones will experience disability. And what will what will just change is the severity or the duration, et cetera, et cetera, of that. And how throughout this pandemic, we decided to ignore the voices of disabled people and to throw them under the bus and to not give them any mainstream editorials into, you know, right. it's ultimately what led us to the point that we are in today. And the lesson to take out of that is really that, in any given situation, when we talk about the future and any choices that we're making, either pandemic strategy in terms of you know, vaccine deployment, et cetera, et cetera, or even pandemic communication strategy um, to our climate strategy, um, to our economic strategy, who do we have to ask first? And who do we have to choose as, as our key leadership figures? Is not people that would be harmed the least, but people that would be harmed the most by that any given thing. So hopefully I've kind of woven these threads. Yeah, together. you did it brilliantly. And I think, you know, again, it's, it's always, you know, when it comes to, um, to issues like uh, the paranoia of around critical race theory or all of the pandemic conspiracies, et cetera, et cetera. It's always about otherizing and saying that there's this something that, does not concern me that I don't want to understand that I don't want to learn. And then I have to, I have to otherize that. I have to label it. I have to find simple answers and simple excuses that would not implicate my own actions and why things have gone wrong. So let's talk about protopia. The term was coined by, one of our recent guests, Wired editor or founder, um, Kevin Kelly. What is it and how does it, how does it help us to think about the future differently? So, yeah, the term was coined by, by Kevin Kelly, who was the founding editor of Wired magazine. Um, and, uh, you know, in his vision, it was the idea of a better future, but predominantly as supported by incremental technological innovation. Um, and that's very much a vision of his and Stuart Brands, even if um, I think Kevin has a broader cultural perspective upon it. 
and a bit more criticism upon also, you know, technology as a panacea. But ultimately, I think the original framing of, of Protopia and better futures, not ideal futures, but better futures, um, and, 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 and this notion of progress, um, you know, was predominantly limited to technological solutions. Now, I could have tried to invent another word, <laughs> but I thought that the word was really, really powerful uh, in, in its root as well, right? Because it comes from, uh, you know, in the way he coined it, it comes from the word pranoia, which is the opposite of paranoia, which is this feeling that the entire world is rooting for you, which could be delusional too, but I think <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's a good feeling to have when we try to think about the future. Um, what really spoke to me is that beginning sort of, you know, protopia as proactive prototyping. So the difference between that and utopia or dystopia is that utopia and dystopia tends to be some kind of end idea. That's the end destination. Dystopia, everything has gone wrong. There's nothing you can do about it. You might as well just make peace with it and consume while you can't consume, right? Utopia says that, well, it's this perfect idea of the future, don't you dare question it because if you might actually start questioning the whole house of cards could collapse right and in and both of them generally tend to be top down and in both of them generally people that already are currently in positions of power remain in positions of power so the way i see um utopia and dystopia is not really as 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 a binary or as um something, uh, two notions at the opposite side of the spectrum, um, but really as uh, two sides of the same coin. You know, it's just what, what do you flip? Um, and I think it's perfectly illustrated uh, when you see movies like Minority Report um, that was a surveillance state dystopia, um, making it into, especially when there was this whole mixed augmented reality craze. Um, and even right now with the metaverse, uh, making into every second uh, VC pitch deck, you know, and movies also like Ready Player One, which is clearly a dystopia we should not be emulating. You know, right now, that's the whole rage in the metaverse conversation. Um, so it's, it's really amazing how uncritically entertainment's dystopia fetishism feeds into technological hype cycles. Um, <laughs> and it's very, very problematic. Because um, not only because both of these um, visions as end states, you know, this unquestionable perfection as well, that leapfrogs, actually, the, the problem with Utopia too is that besides its eugenic roots, et cetera, et cetera, it also leapfrogs everything that we need to be tackling as problems today. And it also leapfrogs trying to reckon with historical trauma and, 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 and the legacy of historical injustice. Um, what they do too is they also uh, really disengage you. They remove agency uh, from you as a citizen of this planet. It makes you feel that, well, future is being decided somewhere else and there's no way that you can significantly contribute to that. And so that's why I felt that, especially reading books by even some authors that I that I really really appreciate, and I think they've contributed uh, very very meaningfully to a lot of futures conversation. I, I believe, um, you know, Naomi Klein uh, kept using and referring to Utopia as a, as, as a frame in "This Changes Everything," which was 
and 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 the leap manifesto that she's been working on uh, which is a, a really especially i mean right now the the newer books on the subject but at that time it was a very very important book right it spoke about climate change as an umbrella issue to all of the other issues and so you know she was speaking how in order to to energize ourselves especially to energize younger generations we need a positive vision and so she kept re- referring to utopia as a vision and because i look at utopia with its historical legacies of of genocide and exclusions and and erasures i felt that we, we can't keep ritualizing that word right and um a lot of my peers have also been using uh, dystopia as in their foresight practice um especially in consulting different firms. You know, imagine the worst case dystopian scenarios and how things could go wrong and maybe let's not go there, right? But the problem is that no's are not enough, right? And oftentimes when you imagine these worst case scenarios, when somebody sees, well, we can make some money in there, mm. it becomes a product roadmap. So dystopia as a product roadmap is a real thing. We just kind of have to see, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the episode of uh, Black Mirror with a, with a robotic dog and uh, Boston Dynamics robotic dog, you know, and how it's going to is already starting to be deployed by by uh, militarized police in the United States of America. Um, so I felt that these things are not enough and we need something new and we need a we need a really um, different and engaging yes vision of the future that is not about in destination that is not about some kind of fictionalized perfection but is really about the process the process of trying to make it better which requires to for you not just to look into the future but also to re-examine the past and not in this nostalgic way because i always stated that nostalgia is actually poison if you just want to recreate something uncritically that existed before this certainly is something that you're not examining within that past. So I think it's that duality of not becoming nostalgic, not thinking that technology is a solution, but really thinking what is the foundation upon which we're building? How do we, you know, if we are to come up with better future solutions, first of all, we have to think of historical inequities. And how do we repair that? How do we make that foundation more healthy? Um, and how, when we are trying to design that, we're not doing it for anybody, right? To design for, for me, it's a failure from the start, right? You have to design it with. And specifically, you, again, have to center the most marginalized groups first and not just center as your target audience or, again, somebody that you're going to be doing it for, but center as leaders, as people with greatest expertise of that thing. And then another huge thing I think um, about Protopia and something I've been both speaking about and kind of fighting about quite a lot, um, trying to debunk this idea that a humanist version of the future is, is, is the best version of future. And that human centric design is something positive that we should be um, kind of embedding and repeating in our system and infrastructure design. I mean, I think actually these are really, really bad things. Um, you know, human-centric design and human-centric vision is the reason why we are in the mess that we are in, right? And I'm not talking about eco-fascism, right? <laughs> We're not talking about humanity is the virus and there's nothing that we can do right, et cetera, um, because 
not everybody has contributed in the same way to the problems that we're living through, right? Yet it's people that have contributed the least that are paying the highest price, right? African continent contributed 3% to the green, approximately 3% to the green grass, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, yet is set to suffer the worst consequences. So unless we recognize that and start with that as a foundation, we're not doing the job. And fundamentally, when you understand what is happening at the bleeding edge of biological sciences, of neuroscience, of medical science, of um, anything around ecology research, you understand that we as humans, we cannot be well unless all other life is well on this planet. And so we are not what we clearly considered ourselves to be based on a lot of sort of dominant Judeo-Christian mythology, you know, the man to rule upon his dominion, <laughs> that we on top and, and everything is just resources that we can exploit. And these words that we use, natural resources, renewable natural resources, et cetera, et cetera, as if we automatically have the right to take that, you know, this is not at all within indigenous frameworks um, of either past or the future. So, Protopia really looks into life-centric design. You know, how do we design futures centering marginalized people, but also the most marginalized species? And how do we say that we can only be well when we think about all of that and when we embed ourselves in all of that? You know, and that requires um, considering way more than just technology. And that requires, again, what we spoke about earlier re-examining how science and technology have been historically biased, have been, you know, when you, when you think about Age of Enlightenment, that so much of the futurism um, eulogizes and speaks about as a positive thing. I mean, Age of Enlightenment in many ways was, you know, the very opposite of that positive whatever kind of thinking. I mean, Descartian thought, um, the sort of... Uh, hypermaterial thought was actually a deeply misguided thought, even on, on a scientific perspective. And that's when things like race pseudoscience was canonized. That's when the worst colonial crimes have happened. So, you know, we can't talk about the future using these very old terminologies and very old frameworks that put humans in the center of it all. And so I think that's a lot, uh, but that's what Protopia is really about thinking about all these things and really being in this continuous process and being really, really open to critique and, and, and constant contributions rather than say, this is our ivory tower, nobody step in here. Hi folks, Phil Kirby here, producer of the show. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader and would like to stay connected with us between episodes, follow us on Twitter at evolving underscore leader. And please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. So this is an incredibly rich conversation. I want to leaven it just a little bit um, with uh, going off attack um, to the uh, manifesto that Scott quoted from earlier on. And it's, an, it's something that we'll put a link to in the, in the show notes because everybody should read it. It's very interesting. But the bit I, I want to get to is, is, is a more of a tactical point, which is that's a collaborative effort, as you said. And collaborative efforts are difficult, especially with very clever people or with, you know. So how? Do, t tell me a little bit about how that 
works in your world and how you get these very smart people with strong opinions lightly held I'm hoping to be able to arrive at a form of words at least that that they all you know come back it's definitely not easy <laughs> and here um you know actually I want to talk a little bit I keep going in slightly different directions but hope it's interesting enough um you know, I've been arguing for more protopian future visions in science fiction. Um, and when people ask me, well, can you give me any examples of what, what protopian stuff have we seen? And to be very honest, there definitely are examples in literature. But in terms of film, Black Panther was pretty much the first protopian sci-fi. Um, and, you know, I, I feel blessed to, to have had um, some conversations with both Ryan, the director, and Hannah, the, the, the production designer that, that created Wakanda. And what's so interesting about that project, um, right, is that it really, really was that um, slap in the face of everybody that was saying that, well, if you want to create something dramatic, if you want to tell a really powerful story, you have to tell it in a dystopian context. Like things have to be all wrong and off and whatever. And that's when it's going to be very dramatic and very interesting, et cetera, et cetera. Which in fact is not the case at all, mm -hmm. right? When you think of examples such as Blade Runner 2049, where like the world that we don't feel engaged with, that city, um, of, of Los Angeles 2049 that if I would invite you, would you like to go and live there? You'd say, no, hell nah. Even if I want to go visit it, it might be for a day or two or a week maximum. But if I ask you, would you like to move to Wakanda? Yeah. Would you like to visit Wakanda? I mean, the answer generally would be hell yes. And so what's interesting about that, right, is that when you actually create a world that people fall in love with, when you actually bring together a, a very diverse group of people, I mean, the people of Wakanda, the characters were all really quite different with really quite different perspectives on pretty much everything, right? They were all Wakandans, true, but they had very different perspectives. And yet, except for the sort of arch villain, right? Um, but even, you know, even arch villain had a lot of points that, that for example, were very relatable to Nakia's points. Um, what happens is that when it's not a group of people that hate each other, and when the story happens, not in a world that is all just desperately depressing, you feel so much more engaged with that narrative. You root for these people to succeed. You know, you like you care so much more about what happens there. But what happens here there is not easy. I mean, we saw even in that fictional film, right? I mean, there was fighting, there was drama, there were misunderstandings, etc., etc., etc. And so I think the same thing, you know, is in everything that I do, when you try to bring people from really different backgrounds together, there's so much learning. I mean, I try to avoid the fighting. I'm, I'm really, um, I don't deal well with anger and things like that. Um, but there's definitely always a learning curve, right? But what's interesting is when you manage to bring together people from many different cultural backgrounds, gender backgrounds, social backgrounds, you know, generational backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. But none of them 
is a bigot. You know, none of them engages in transphobia, homophobia, ableism, etc. Maybe they don't understand to the same degree all of the issues around trans rights, right, or, or, or refugee rights, or disability issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But they all feel like if I don't know about that thing, but I'm willing to learn, we can all learn from each other. And sometimes that learning can be quite painful because you have to confront. I mean, when I started really diving deep into disability justice issues, I had to confront so much of my own internalized ableism. I had to confront how so many things that I considered to be, you know, well, you know, I was just weird and maybe these kids just didn't like me or maybe this and that, or, you know, maybe I was just excluded because of that, or maybe, you know, I was blaming it on the fact that it was just misogyny. I had to realize a lot of that was ableism and a lot of harm, psychological harm that I caused myself as well is because, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I was conditioned to the ablest perception of the world. And I was blaming myself for something that I actually should have been tender with myself, which bled into everything else, into my relationship, my work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I mean, you know? I think when you try to bring together a really diverse group of people, what you have to ensure, once again, is that people that have the most marginalized experience would be safe first, right? Because if you bring a transphobe into a space, naturally you will be excluding trans people. If you bring somebody that is vehemently ableist, you will like, you know, it's the same thing when we now with the pandemic, right? Uh, People are fighting, you know, my body, my choice, appropriating already uh, (laughs) the, the, the feminist language, to say that they have the right to not wear the mask, et cetera, et cetera, right? But then what you're saying is not that you have the right to do whatever you want with your body, right? If you want to do anything you want with your body, go go bungee jumping, go do crazy mountain climbing, go um, skydiving, whatever, like anything that you're not going to hurt others. If you want to put your life at risk in very thrilling or very boring kind of ways, as long as you're doing it just to yourself, that's fine. But if you're stepping in a space within which an immunocompromised person could be that either cannot be vaccinated or for whom vaccine is not going to be strong enough, what you argue is that you have the right to kill, mm-hmm. right? And so if I'm bringing together a group of people and I want to make sure that it's disability inclusive, so certainly there will be some people for whom, you know, if, if, if they would get sick, they would get marginalized within the medical system, um, you know, and, and for whom these health risks are much greater. And if I bring within that space an anti-masker, naturally, I will be excluding a person with disabilities. And so that, that extends to everything with, with, with racism, <laughs> with somebody that is uh, vehemently anti-refugee, et cetera, et cetera. So we can bring very different people with very different bases of knowledge and say that we can learn from each other as long as that whatever we have to say, whatever we express does not ultimately dehumanize anybody else that is within that space. Right. And I think that's the key kind of thing, but it's also about having that 
when you know that intentions are good, when you know that people are trying to learn, it's also accepting that somebody to whom a particular issue is really quite new, you know, it will be a learning curve. And as long as they're not malignantly, ignorantly, um, intentionally uh, trying to cause harm, you can't expect them to go from, you know, from, from A to Z in one day. Like, it will take them at least a couple of years of just reading through the books to understand these issues. And, and let alone starting to have certain confidence and acceptance within a community so they could actually start learning because you can't just come and throw these questions. You know, as, as somebody of, of extreme privilege, you can't just come in and be like, you know, talking to a person whom you have historically oppressed for potentially centuries <laughs> and just be like, teach me everything about it for free. Do all of this labor. No, you, you just can't do that. So it's also a long work, but it's also a really, what people don't understand is it's profoundly enriching. And it's not a chore. The whole new universe opens up to you. You know, if your reading list is just white male authors, you know, and you start reading, you know, non-cis authors and disabled authors and indigenous authors, you know, and authors of very different you know, Middle Eastern authors, African authors, you know, or following them on Twitter, on Instagram. It's not like you should feel challenged. It's actually a whole new world opens up for you. And if you're just curious enough about it, you will be learning so much that will ultimately make you better as a human being. So we should be excited rather than terrified about that. I'm 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 very excited by that by this. I think, you know, we we've we've come to the end of our time, um, unfortunately. And what that makes me feel is deeply frustrated that we've only just opened up this conversation. Monica, would you be willing to come back and continue it? fairly shortly so that we could do another part to this for sure sorry i feel like i'm 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 uh, because i'm so hyper because i'm i'm, I'm, traveling, <laughs> et cetera, no. I'm just going into these really long answers and, no, and it's long so story. rich it's so rich <laughs> and so good honestly um but i think to john's point we've just merely scratched the surface and it would be wonderful to have you back on it would be a pleasure your questions okay. were your questions were were, were were beautiful and sensitive and um, I think, you know, the more we share, the more we learn, um, you know, a, a little project of love that I have is, is, is called Knowledge Exchange, which is a, it's kind of, a, it's an internal Twitter of, of really different, really interesting people. Um, mine is the trolls and the bigots. And, uh, you know, and it's all about, you know, by sharing the knowledge, you also learn because if everybody shares their knowledge generously then others will be invited to share their knowledge generously and then all of a sudden wow you've got 200 people that are just teaching each other so um happy to share knowledge at any thank uh, you yeah well we, we you you have opened up uh scott and i's uh minds mm -hmm. and hearts to some really profound issues which i think um we need to spend more time on because the you know the the goal of the evolving leader is to try and bring progressive ideas that challenge the status quo, that challenge people to think in a really constructive way. And I think you've done that brilliantly today. So mm -hmm. let's um, 
let's pause. <laughs> wish you well on your travels, and we'll catch up Absolutely. with you when you're in in your next uh, your next watering hole. Thank you, thank you so much. Well, folks, until next time, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? Mm-hmm.